Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. In the Pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page 680 if you want to follow along. From Nehemiah, chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judea with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are, and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the Lord of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are in the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Thanks, Helen. Hey, everyone. Happy New Year's. It's great to see your intermittently smiling faces. And I'm, I'm going to try to make it another whole year being your pastor. We'll see if we can get through all of 2020. It's going to be great. So excited. Um, <clears throat> so um, we're going to start out this year um, in the book of Nehemiah in the Bible, and we're going to focus on the, th the main theme of that book, which is um, overcoming or flourishing in the midst of opposition. And so there's a couple reasons why I think this is going to be a great book for us, and you're going to want to be here all 146 weeks of this series. I'm just kidding. 13 <laughs> weeks of the series. Um, and that is, uh, one is that, um, so actually, actually, let me do this first. So Nehemiah is the last narrative book in the Old Testament. So it's, it's the last story of how things went before Jesus, okay? Ezra and Nehemiah are sort of one book. In, the, in, the, in Jewish Bibles, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. And it covers the time from the returning from exile. So the Jewish people had a, had a country. They were really naughty for about 500 years, give or take a millennia. And they were punished by God. God destroyed their whole nation and sent them into exile to cure them of their idolatry and other sins. It did actually cure them of their idolatry, but not their other sins. And so 70 years later, God kept his promise and brought them back to the land of Israel to rebuild it, okay? And so they came back, and most people think in three waves, um, from the year of 536 BC until 431. The dates for Nehemiah are, 
445, 431. Now that's our best guess. We don't exactly know. It's based on a couple of assumptions, based on whom King, whom, who King Ashuerus is. You'd be like, well, how many King Ashuerus are there? There's, that's not a very cool name. Okay, well, you don't speak Persian, first of all. You don't know how cool it sounds in that language. And then secondly, um, Ashuerus just means king of justice or kingdom of justice. So what king doesn't want to name themselves that, right? There were actually a number of Persian kings who were called Ashuerus at different times because it's a great compliment to give yourself, right? So it's possible that King Darius called himself Ashuerus and then Xerxes II's son was Ashuerus. So it's a little confusing. So it is actually possible that Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zechariah, and Haggai, and all this stuff all happened in the same generation in like 20 years. It's probably a little bit more likely that it happened over about a hundred-year period in sort of three gen successive generations. Does that make sense? Great. Now, the reason why—now, um, some of you may have heard that Nehemiah—in Nehemiah, they rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and they do rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, but that's not what it's all about. In fact, most evangelical Christians, if you've heard anything about the book of Nehemiah, there's usually only two reasons you've ever heard about the book of Nehemiah. The first is that you went to, like, a leadership seminar. If you go to a Christian leadership seminar, this is the only book they ever talk about. Right? They're like, Jesus is an okay leader, but Nehemiah, now that guy, you know, like, and they talk about Nehemiah. And then the second one is, um, is if there's a building campaign, right? Churches love Nehemiah because they build a wall and the city and the build is right? And I'm just going to tell you that in this series, we're not going to talk about leadership. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're not going to have a building campaign either. <laughs> anyway, so, um, now— but it's important to recognize that Nehemiah doesn't just rebuild the wall. He does that. It's one of the first things he does. It takes him less than a year. It's like 50 days. They rebuild the wall. He still is working super hard to renew the people of God for like 25 to 30 years. So building the wall is one of his greatest achievements, but it's not anything like all of what Nehemiah is about. Do you understand? He, he comes back and is used by God to rebuild the whole people and their whole culture and their whole city and their whole society. It is a huge job right now. Here's why I think it's great for us to study it. Besides, it's the Word of God written, and you can always learn from the Word of God written. The first is, is that Nehemiah is one of the great leaders of redemption for God's people, and he brings salvation to a people who are enslaved and lost and broken. And in that sense, Nehemiah demonstrates what Jesus is like. Right? Because sometimes we, we, get, we get a little bit drawn back because we know that Jesus is God. And so sometimes we don't take really seriously the drama of all that he's done for us, and it doesn't affect us very deeply in our hearts. But sometimes when you look at a person who's not God, like Nehemiah, who God uses— and you see all the drama in his life, and all he went through, and all he did, and all that work, and all, right? And then, and then somebody goes, don't you see that Jesus is the truer and greater Nehemiah? All of a sudden, that triggers something for us to see Jesus' greatness that we would have just covered over with religious cliche and not felt anything about if we hadn't seen it through somebody else. Does that make sense? So Nehemiah is going to point to Jesus, I think, in a way that will be very helpful for you to understand how amazing Jesus is and feel something related to that. Secondly, the rules and the ways and the principles and the way God has called us to overcome things in our lives, the principles of that haven't really changed ever. So all of the principles about living for God and serving him and being an overcomer that Nehemiah lives out and that God teaches through Nehemiah are 100% applicable for you in your specific life right now. Okay? Thirdly, 
Um, Nehemiah is part of rebuilding the people of God as a family and group of people together. And what's true about the Israelites coming together and being rebuilt and overcoming as a people is also true almost very directly about the church of God, us together in the family of God. Does that make sense? So it's good for us. And then here means like our city, like every human society, no matter how good it thinks it is, must be continually renewing itself from within or it decays and grows in decadence and falls apart even if you have good institutions. And so in the society we live in, however good or bad you think it is, our society must be renewed or it will die. And in order for it to be renewed, there must be some people with the burden for its renewal, led by God, to be used by him to bring renewal and life and help and redemption and overcoming and, and other meanings of salvation into that society for it to flourish. Does that make sense? And so there are ways in which our city, in which we're supposed to be part of the good or flourishing coming to our city, that isn't direct salvation. That can only come through each individual person believing in Jesus. But in the wider flourishing that God brings to all people, wants to bring to all people, that can be partly experienced if we play our part in the here that we're meant to be a part of. Does that make sense? And remember, that's a very biblical command related to the exile. Because when God sends people into the exile and um, in the book of Jeremiah, he says in, in Jeremiah, everybody loves the, um, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Jeremiah 29, 11, right? They're like, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. That full verse. And well, you should. It's a great, it's a great verse. And I- interestingly enough, historically, he fulfills that promise through Nehemiah. The thing he actually promises in, in Jeremiah 29, he fulfills with Nehemiah going back and rebuilding the wall and bringing salvation, a, a, a life that is not full of shame and disgrace to the people who had come back. Does that make sense? It's the first fulfillment of that promise. Right? But what he says to them is he says, he says when he sends them, he says, look, I have a wonderful plan for your life. I I have good plans for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. But then in the relationship to that prosperity, he says, go into the city of Babylon and live for its prosperity, because if they prosper, you will prosper. God has in many cases intertwined his people with non-believing people to live together in a single society to test our faith to cause us to grow, to force us to reach out to our neighbor, and to have a deeply God-centered identity in the midst of people who are not like us. And remember, in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter says, you who live as exiles among the nations. That's how he addresses the church, because he sees us more like an exile than as having our own kingdom. Does that make sense? All right. So I think that there's so much we can learn from this book, you guys. Okay, great. All right, so the big principle for the whole book would be something like this. True flourishing always depends on someone overcoming opposition. True flourishing always depends on someone overcoming opposition. Now, one of the key words here is someone. Because not every flourishing that we experience did we overcome to experience. In fact, not very many of them did we overcome to experience. You remember several years ago, President Obama said um, something, something flippantly, he shouldn't have said it this way, but he was getting at something that everybody got angry about, where he said, he said, you know, you built that business, you think you built that business, but you didn't build that, and people, people flipped out about that. But he meant something kind of broader. What he, what he kind of meant was this, was like, you didn't build the railroads, right? Or like, you didn't come here from the country of your family of origin where you burned everything to ashes and fled oppression and come here. Like, you didn't do that. Like, even economically, even when we really do work really hard, we're still always standing on the shoulders of other people, right? That's actually true. Like, I am who I am today because my parents, like, diapered me and fed me and taught me things. And even culture itself, the stuff that we get, like, upset and, like, don't even really want to receive from our parents, what's called culture 
That is the, the achievement of thousands of generations of human beings learning truths about what it means to live together and then trying to pass that cum accumulated knowledge onto another generation so we don't fall back into the state of nature like the Lord of the Flies. Do you understand? Even that, they'll like, say thank you, brush your teeth, wipe your face, open the door for that person. Stuff that we don't pay any attention to. Our enormous cultural accomplishments that cause us to live together better than we otherwise would have. And those are things passed on to us. And if we will obey them and live in them, they will cause more flourishing than otherwise. And we didn't create any of that, right? Of course, as Christians, the greatest example of someone else overcoming for our flourishing is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right? Someone had to overcome the debt of sin. Someone had to overcome our unwillingness to obey God. Right? Sc scripture says that we were God's enemies. We weren't even interested in overcoming our sin when Jesus came to overcome our sin. And we flourish spiritually if we believe in him because he overcame. Right? But there are some things that God wants to overcome for you, that all you can do is receive it and be glad about it and thankful for it. And there's other things where God wants to overcome something and cause you to participate in his overcoming, making you an overcomer also. Do you understand? So when it comes to your justification, that is your right standing with God, that comes only through the death and resurrection of Jesus— it comes apart from law so that there's no boasting, right? There's nothing that you can do to add to it. You can't ever brag about it because it's 100% done by Jesus. There's nothing you can add to your righteousness before God, right? But knowing Jesus, like, like if, you're, if you heard John the other week, he said, Paul says in, in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul recognized that his whole life was not that Jesus suffered, so I'll never have to suffer. Jesus suffered for your sins, so you'll never have to pay the judicial penalty for your sins before God. But he didn't suffer for all the rest of your suffering and all the suffering you, that is added to your life because you follow Jesus. When you follow Jesus, you're following Jesus into suffering. Jesus didn't die to take that suffering away. Jesus died so that you could be made courageous enough to do what's good and beautiful and follow him into the warfare against the opposition that destroys human flourishing so you can be part of what is good and true and beautiful that God is doing. And that will create all kinds of hardship that he didn't take away, that you will face and you will overcome in with him so that you will bring, bring flourishing not just for yourself, but for everyone else. There is no Christian flourishing that is parasitic. You understand? Every way Christians flourish produces more than what we make for ourselves and blesses others. And so there's no way to flourish as a Christian that doesn't cause other people to flourish too. If there's some way you think you're flourishing and you cannot figure out how anybody else benefits from it, it is probably not good. Do you understand? That's a topic for another time. Okay, one of the things to think about in relationship to overcoming and flourishing— and this is something that Nehemiah and his generation had to think about, and every human being has to think about, is we like to think that we're more like animals than plants, but there's certain ways in which we're kind of like plants. I've been thinking about this related to trees. No tree gets to pick where they're planted. That's one of the bummers about plants. You know what I mean? They just, wherever they're planted, that's where they are. And we want to think that we're not really like that, 
but we're actually a lot more like that than we think. You didn't pick the culture you were born to. You didn't pick the race you were born to, the economic status you were born to, the health that you have, your gender, what time or era that you were born in. Like, you're like, well, those aren't big deals. Listen, if you were born in 546 BC as opposed to now, you would think when you were born was a big deal. Okay? Those are all really big deals, and they have profoundly shaped you. But what the gospel teaches is, is that no planting prohibits spiritual flourishing. Now that is a very bold statement because most of the life of human beings has been incredibly oppressive and terrible. And so to say that there is no life wherever it's planted that can't at least spiritually and morally flourish in which you can bear the dignity of being a human being no matter what people do to you and you can live for the glory of God. Those two things anybody can have no matter where they're planted. That's a very bold statement. But the scriptures teach that. 1 Corinthians 7 and in other places. But where you're planted may still profoundly affect you. So for example, there's a bunch of places in the world where trees are shaped like this because of the winds that they face. They they didn't want to get planted there, but that's where they ended up. And they have like 40 mile an hour winds blowing against them nine months out of the year. That's what they look like. I've actually, at my house in Madison, I have this apple tree that's like shaped like this. Because just the prevailing winds come from that side, right? There's, my neighbor has this big tree, and it still has a metal stake in the ground next to it. And I always thought that was so weird. But she had to put it there to prop the tree up while it was growing so that it wouldn't look ugly like my tree. And then she didn't tell me I was supposed to do it. <laughs> so, anyway, um, this tree, for example, is in the southern tip of Argentina, where the wind blows up over out of Antarctica and up over the hills and just flattens this tree out. But let, let, me, let me tell you something. That wind has oppressed this tree. It has overpowered this tree. You could even argue that that wind has deformed this tree. But biologically speaking, and objectively speaking, this tree flourishes. Do you understand? And that's true for some of us. You may be planted in a place where in your overcoming and in the flourishing God will bring in your life, it's not going to be like you're going to be this like pretty little straight-up oak tree. You might end up looking like that. But that's kind of awesome. And that, if that's what you can do where you're planted, that's what you're called to do. That's the flourishing that you can have. Do you understand? This is a great one from Scotland. I just think that's so dope. Okay. Then, but it's like one of the things, it's not just the external oppression that we have to overcome, right? It's internal stuff, right? Like I'm going to use bugs as an example of this, but in Christian faith there's what's called the flesh or the sinful nature, that there's, there's stuff wrong with the inside of us. And scripture teaches that that's really our greatest battle, and that's really our most difficult thing to overcome, right? There's all these things that like get inside of us and they want to, they want to twist things further. They want to break things down. They want to turn us towards selfishness. They don't, they don't want to be interested in deeper, bigger, more meaningful things, right? And then also decadence can destroy us. Like sometimes it's not the bad times that will cause us to not flourish. Sometimes it's not stress that needs to be overcome. Sometimes it's plenty that needs to be overcome. You know, we're one of the only creatures on God's green earth that can destroy ourselves better with prosperity than with suffering. Most critters just like eat themselves full and then they just like lay around or something. Like we literally can destroy ourselves with decadence. And when you look at the life of Nehemiah, we're going to see that he has to face both of these. He has to face his soul being attacked by plenty and decadence and wealth and celebrity. And then he has to deal with the difficulties of 
being without, of deprivation, right? And further than that, you also see this in the prophetic words about Jesus that are spoken right before the exile and the restoration. In the book of Isaiah, it says in Isaiah 53, He, that's the Messiah, the suffering servant, grew up before him, that is God the Father, like a tender shoot that is like something small. But like, he's like, oh, tender shoots, those are really cute. Okay, well, just hang with the metaphor. Like a root out of dry ground. Okay, I don't know if you've ever seen like a little thing growing in the desert, but so imagine something that you dug up out of dirt that was dry and cracked from drought, and you got this little root. Right? He's saying, that's what the Messiah looks like. You understand? Jesus the Messiah was planted in the worst soil you can imagine. A soil that hated him. A soil that ultimately murdered him. A soil that despised him, that didn't listen to him, that didn't appreciate him, that didn't follow him well. That's the soil Jesus was planted into. And Jesus grew. In fact, in Isaiah 11, talking about the line of Jesse and the line of kings, it says, it says, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So if you Google shoot growing out of cut stump or something close to that, you'll find a thousand pictures. You know, the stump, somebody cuts the stump off, and the tree like grows a shoot out the side, and you're like, oh, it's a little tree out of the stump. Isn't that great? Okay. Google, shoot grows out of stump, bears fruit. One picture. There's this one little stump. Somebody cut this apple tree into like four places. There's one little thing that grew out of it, and it grew one apple. (laughs) That's not what this means. The fruit this is talking about is an abundance of fruit. So think about that from this perspective, from that tree perspective. Somebody cut it off. You talk about adversity, oppression, difficulty, opposition to overcome. Here's this tree growing. Somebody took a chainsaw to it. Cut the thing right off. And it grows out the side, and it grows up into a full new tree, and it produces fruit for the nations. Jesus is the truest and greatest fruitful tree overcoming any oppression planted in the worst soil producing fruit for the life and the healing of the nations. He is great. And you were redeemed, not just for him to do that for you in everything, but for you to be made like him in all things, becoming the kind of overcomer that he is for the fruitfulness of the nations, for the healing of the nations, for the flourishing of the nations. You understand? Okay, so how do we do that, Pastor Nick? Well, I'm about to say— So if true flourishing always depends on someone else, someone overcoming opposition, either you or someone else, one of the first things we can say about the principle that comes out of Nehemiah chapter 1 is this, that supports that, is overcoming starts with sharing God's longing for our flourishing. Overcoming starts with sharing God's longing for our flourishing. If you don't share God's longing for your flourishing and the flourishing of other people, you will not overcome squat. Squat is a technical term meaning not very much. Okay? Now— When Nehemiah is thinking about what it's going to take, and he starts praying, one of the things he starts praying immediately is he starts being really focused on God. So you can see this. He says, he he says, 
Lord, they're your servants and your people who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of, his man, of this man. Notice he doesn't even say his own name. And he refers to the king of the largest empire in the world as what? This man. <laughs> this man. Who is treated as a god by everybody in the empire. He, it's very important to recognize when we talk about this sort of thing, about overcoming. Caring about God and caring about what God cares about are not the same thing. Okay? I'm going to say it again. This is very important. Caring about God and caring about what God cares about are not the same thing, okay? I'm going to give you a movie script right now. You ready? This is a whole movie. If you make a movie and make millions of dollars, you don't have to pay me anything because this plot line has been used a number of times, okay? <clears throat> Girl falls in love, uh, in love with boy. They've been dating for a while. This is still the first several scenes of the movie. They decide to go have lunch. She doesn't seem to be very happy to go to lunch. She's talking with her girlfriend. They're like, oh, you can go to lunch. We'll go to lunch. We'll go to the place. Oh, you go to that place. You can get the place. Let me get the things at the place. Okay. Then they go to the restaurant. She sits down at the restaurant. He's talking. He's a really successful guy. Does a lot of stuff. Looking fit. Wearing nice clothes. Work, doing hard at work. He's talking about work. Talking about this. Talking about this. We're that. And she, she seems, he said all kinds of exciting things about stuff. And she seems less interested as this conversation is going on. And finally, she's like, you know what? I just realized you just want me here to be interested in you and to be part of what you're doing and you don't really care anything about me or what I want or what I care about. I'm a, I'm a prop to you, right? And it's over. It's over, Simon. And then she gets up and she walks out and she trips over a box being unloaded by a handsome strapping gentleman who— <laughs> who's also in art school and has tattoos on both arms, and she can fall, and he catches her, and then you know the rest of the movie, right? <laughs> but listen, like, we're, we're that guy to God. We're that guy. We're like, God, I got all this stuff going on. I got all this stuff I'm doing, and you can be part of it, and I want you to be there for it, and you can make it go well, and we're going to have such a great time, and you're going to love it. And like, and he's like, you don't— am I even— you're, Am I interchangeable with the wall? Like, you don't even care anything about what I think, what I'm doing, what— I, Do you understand? It's a—it's so insulting. So insulting. Caring—thinking that you care about God isn't the same thing as caring about what God cares about. If you recognize that Jesus wants to make you someone who can overcome opposition for flourishing— You've got to realize that it starts with caring about what God cares about, not just caring about God. And if you don't care about what God cares about, but you, you tell yourself you care about God, this is a really thing for you to consider. You need to think about this. You need to get some time alone. You need to get some quiet time. You need to get away from some screens and get yourself thinking straight. Have a good breakfast in the morning and think about whether or not it is reasonable and not self-deception to think that you care about God if you don't care about what God cares about. I could give you the answer, but I don't want to steal your destiny. You need to work that out, okay? So, one of the ways to look at this is, um, if we're really going to share God's heart and his, his longings, we have to have a heart that's wide enough to transcend our immediate experience. And that's really hard for us because we experience a lot of things these days. 
There's a lot of things to experience coming in screens and foods we can go buy and all these sorts of things we can experience, right? Um, but unless you can like get out of what's immediately in front of your face and see the longing of God, what is really true, good, and beautiful in his eyes and what he wishes to do, you're going to be stuck in whatever you're in. You're not going to overcome anything. Do you understand? Why, why do I take that out of this passage? This is how he refers to himself. Nehemiah says, While I was in the citadel of Susa, and then a verse later, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. So this is, this is the people of Israel who are back in Israel. This is his life. And at the very end of the passage, he says, I was cupbearer to the king, right? You can't overcome what you can't see beyond. You understand? You can't. And so— Think for a second about Nehemiah's life. Because it's easy for us to just be like, yeah, he went back and rebuilt the wall. That's fabulous. That's so good. He got to be the governor. That's so good. Right? Okay. He was in the citadel of Susa. Okay, Susa is the summer palace of the king of the largest empire in the world. It's right on this beautiful river. It is both a extremely decadent party center, because that's what kings do in the summertime. There's less business. People have big parties. Other kings travel in. It's fabulous. Um, one of the things is, remember the other big party at the Citadel of Susa? What's the other big party at the Citadel of Susa? I mean, this is— Right! Right! The party that got Esther's predecessor kicked out, right? What's her name? King, Queen Ashton— that's Vashti, right? That's right. Right, Queen, Queen Vashti, like, the king's super drunk. This is probably two kings earlier. He's super drunk. He's like, hey, get my super hot wife to come out here and dance for the guys. And she's like, I ain't coming out. Right? And then she got kind of banished. It was bad. But all that happened at the Citadel of Susa. Because that's—it's party time in the summertime. So Nehemiah is the wine cupbearer for party time in the summertime in the citadel of Susa, in the king's resort. In chapter 2, he talks to the king and queen about leaving, and they're both like, Nehemiah, when are you coming back? Like, you're, like, he's their boy. Like, they love him. They're like, we couldn't possibly. You gotta be back here. You're like the life of the party, Nehemiah. He's like, I know, but I gotta go build this thing. Right? Like, that's his life, you guys. That's his life. And he's got a really hard job. He takes a cup, and he gets it filled with wine. And he carries it from one place to another place, and he gives it to the king. And he gets to drink some of it, in case it's poisoned, you know? But you're getting to drink the king's wine out of his cup. Like, it's kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big deal, right? If there was anybody who should say something like, man, it's too bad about Jerusalem— it's too bad about Jerusalem. Man, those guys are really having a heart. Somebody should help them. You know what we could do? We could like take like an offering or something. Maybe send them a little money, right? And say, somebody's like, dude, man, you should do something. You're like, listen, I realize people, you might think I should do something about it. But listen, it wasn't but a generation ago that Queen Esther stopped some like thing from killing all the Jews like in the capital. Like I should be here for that. Just in case that happens again. Like who really knows? And like I'm right here with the king. Like if there, somebody needs to influence the influencers, like I'm in a good position for that. Like I, I feel like I should stay put. Right? That would have been perfectly reasonable. It would have been a pretty spiritual way to think about it. What's wrong with that? Think it strategically. Nothing wrong with that. Right? But here's the problem. 
couldn't live with himself. Couldn't live with it. Because his heart, do you understand? His heart couldn't live with it. His heart couldn't live with the fact that someone else would do this work. His heart knew that, that yes, God loved all the people in Persia, but God's stream of salvation was going to run through Zion and he wanted to be part of it. He's only got one life. And if and he could ask the king right now, I mean, you want to say that you're in a position of power to influence the influencers? How about now? Why not go ask the king right now for a bunch of money to go rebuild something and then go do it yourself? Which is what he does in chapter 2. You see, the thing that made this go was that Nehemiah shared the longing of God because he was connected not to— he didn't just care about God. He cared about what God cared about, and he cared about it strongly enough and deeply enough that it transcended what was right in front of him, the ease that was right in front of him, the fears that were right in front of him, to see through that to something else and actually care about it enough to act. And listen, friends, that dynamic— that dynamic is what carries overcoming opposition. Because overcoming opposition is discouraging. That's why people oppose you. They want you to give up. Devils or people or dynamics or structures or everything, they're all designed to make things harder. I mean, wh why do bureaucracies exist? Well, to be efficient and also to discourage people from trying to work around them. You know what I mean? People, why do they discourage you? Because they want you to quit. So they don't have to fool with you and spend as much time resisting you. Like, it's all about getting people to not fight. Pacification is the program of heaven. Or hell. Sorry, that was wrong. <laughs> you should have known that. Did you know that? Were you like, that's not right. I don't think that's the thought he was going for. Pacification is the program of hell. Passion for the good to overcome whatever it takes that all might flourish. For the glory of God is the program of heaven. Do you understand? Okay, we better move on. All right. Overcoming starts with sharing God's longing for our flourishing with a heart wide enough to transcend our experience, deep enough to become a permanent burden. Now, I realize that the word burden is often not a positive word, right? You think, burden, that's a— I, you know, like my mother-in-law's a burden. You know, that's not—you know, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. I'm just, um, people think of burdens as negative things, like stuff that you shouldn't have to carry, you want to get rid of, that sort of thing. And that's true. You know, like in um, Pilgrim's Progress, the great burden on Christian's back was something bad that he needed to get rid of. But a, a burden, there's also a long, a long history of referring to a burden as something that, that um, you don't want to be healed of until something changes. So, um, it says that when, when Nehemiah heard what was going on in Jerusalem, it says, he said, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now let me, let me just ask you something. When was the last time something happened or you heard something, somebody, something was told to you that caused you to have to sit down, that you immediately burst into tears? Weeping usually means there's some body shaking involved. You know, it's like serious business crying right? Such that you refused to eat because eating didn't seem right at a time like this. 
And it caused you to do that and to pray for days. When was the last time that happened to you emotionally? Right? For most of us, that has never happened. About anything, even the death of a—for most people, if that's happened, it was either because a parent or a child died. If that's happened to you. That's not what happened to Nehemiah. He heard about some people he, he was barely related to. They weren't close. They were 600 miles away. He'd never met them. If, if, 100, if almost 100 years had passed, he doesn't know any of these people. Right? Why does he care so much? He, he hears about how people 600 miles away are living, and it wrecks him. Right? A burden is something like a sickness of the heart that doesn't wear off. It's something that wrecks your life as you've conceived of it, and yet you find the burden worth pursuing. It's like a wound that you receive over how things should be that you don't really want to be cured of until it changes. That's what a burden is. And Nehemiah is burdened by the plight of Judah. And he's burdened by it because he believes he shares the burden of God for them. Because that is the centerpiece of salvation that God is bringing both for his people and for the world. Right? And in order to overcome opposition, real opposition, you have to have a burden. I'm trying to give you a concept that's deep enough. Do you understand? Because in our culture, we tend to not feel deeply. So, okay, I'm 42 years old, so I live between a few generations. I'm old enough to have known a lot of people who are in the builder generation and the older boomers, right? And I'm young enough to be thought cool enough by some of the younger generations to, like, interact with them, okay? So I intera I've interacted with, like, five or six different generations. And one of the things that I have noticed that other people have noticed, obviously, is that there's a lot more sarcasm now, okay? Now, there is a good kind of sarcasm where you really are getting at a deep longing by referring to it negatively in your— sh like, they, it, it's there. It's very rarely used. You—most sarcasm is an expression of vanity in which somebody purports to be more sophisticated than some, some, some stupid way of thinking and shows how sophisticated they are by the way they make something that's meaningful look ridiculous. Or to make light of something that's really a tragedy, right? Like, it doesn't matter. And— for a while, I—because I use a lot of sarcasm. Because I use a lot of sarcasm, I was very committed to the first interpretation of sophistication. And um, the older that I get, and the more I counsel people, and I observe my own life, and I observe the life of others, I, I tend to be moving towards the second one. Um, one, of the, one of the questions that I, I've been asking myself over the last few years about sarcasm is— does the frequency of sarcasm in our culture indicate more the, our, a growth in sophistication or really an expression of our hurt? As we have a more chaotic society, as families break down and as people hurt each other more, as the bonds of voluntary societies break down, right? As, as all that—as our society is actually breaking apart socially and personally, I think what's really happening is we're getting a lot more emotionally hurt. We feel a lot more emotionally vulnerable. We don't want to live in that state. Nobody wants to live in that state. We don't want—we don't want that. And so we have all kinds of defense mechanisms by which we can be interesting and sophisticated, and yet not really have to open our hearts to the depth of feeling that can produce the kind of pain we want to avoid. 
especially if we've been told throughout our lives that nothing really means that much anyway. So our vision that there could be a spiritual truth or a moral truth so great that it would be heartbreakingly beautiful and be worth it to feel that deeply, even if you got hurt. We've been secularized out of that. And so there's nothing so great to gain, but we know from being abused and sexually assaulted and hurt, and we have wounds from our parents and all that kind of stuff, we know we can be really hurt. So if you can't gain a hundred, but you can lose a hundred, who wants that bet? Better to have a lot of mechanisms of defense, function a little bit more shallow emotionally, and keep just enough to froth our emotions at the top so that we can feel something. Because you got to feel something, right? You and I were not meant to live as emotionally broken and shallow creatures. We were made to feel as deep as the longings of God. We were meant to care about the meaning of the world. We were meant to believe in its spiritual realities and truths and the tragedies when they're not lived out. And we were meant to lament the curse and hate evil and love good and be enraptured in the glory of God and to want to be part of redemption and to, and to lament our failures and to hate our sin and to hunger and thirst after righteousness so that we could be filled. There's this place in John 4 where um, Jesus goes to this well, and there's this woman there who's had like five husbands, and she's a bit of a relational mess. And they have this interchange where like he like prophetically reveals her kind of her background, and she's like, oh my gosh. And like she believes in him as the Messiah and goes and talks to people, and then all this stuff happens, right? And um, she leaves, and then all the disciples come back. They were out buying food, right? And they get back, and they're like, Jesus, you want some food? And it's almost like a throwaway line, and preachers don't seem to talk about it that much anymore. And he says, he says, yeah, he's like, not really. Listen, I've got food you guys don't know anything about. Right? See, that's, that's the kind of line we say sarcastic things about, right? That's a, that's a religious cliche, right? We're more sophisticated than that, aren't we? No, you don't want to open your heart to the truth of that. Do you know what Jesus just said? He said there's some things so deep that fill you so full that food is irrelevant. And you don't believe that exists. Not in here, not real deep. So just read over that verse. Don't mention it. Say something sarcastic about it. You were meant to experience things so deep so profound, so real, that they filled you so much that you're like, eh, Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A. I'm not hungry. I'm full. I'm full in here. When was the last time you felt that kind of full? The answer is, you can't if you protect your heart and you close it down and you fill it with sarcasm and you defend it and you don't because you don't want the burden. You don't want that burden of God. It's terrifying. It will destroy your life. It'll take you places you've never dreamed. It'll take you from the summer party palace to a bunch of rubble in the middle of a desert. Why do you think missionaries sign up for that kind of service? You think it's because they got sick of Starbucks? Something happens. 
Why do you think people who have enough money to live by themselves in their own apartment invite a couple of, like, friends that they know are going to, like, ruin their privacy and their personal enjoyment by living with them, to live with them? Why do they do that? Because they believe more in community than privacy. Because they have the burden of God for love. I mean, whether it's a a seemingly small thing or a seemingly great thing, and everything in between, it has to do with the burden. Is the burden there? Is it beyond your experience? Can you see something beyond your experience? And is it deeper? Is it deep in the human heart? Is it expanding your capacity to feel? Is it driving through your hurts and saying, even that hurt you don't want to mention doesn't get the right to close down the human heart because you must feel the burden of God so that you can be filled so much that food is irrelevant. You see, you can't, we can't. The storm wall of opposition will never be overwhelmed by the wave of our passion if we don't have a God-sized burden inside of us. That's why I'm talking about this. That's why it's so important. That's why Nehemiah starts with it. It's all of chapter one. The burden has got to be there. For you to overcome, for you to enjoy life. Why are we so terrified to be poorer? Why are we so terrified of not having money? People are supposed to fill you. The other image bearers who you're close friends with, who just being with them can make you laugh, who knowing them brings you joy. That's free! It's, it doesn't cost anything to have a wonderful life. Why must we have two incomes? Why must we make enough? Why must we do these things? Because you have to buy the froth. The well of the beauty of the glory of God comes from a deeper place and costs nothing. Read the first verses of Isaiah 55, right? Come to me, all of you who are hungry and thirsty, and I will give you food and drink. I will give you drink without cost, and I will give you the best fare of food, and it will all be free, right? And the next verses outline the gospel. Okay, I've only got two minutes left, so we're going to go through nine applications relatively quickly, okay? (laughs) I thought that was a pithy thing to say there. Okay, here we go. One, will you be only a recipient or also someone who overcomes opposition and promotes flourishing for others? You've been the recipient of many people laying down their lives for you and the greater person who is also God, Jesus the Christ. And many people have purchased with their own blood and sacrifice the overcoming necessary for the flourishing that you have received. Are you only going to be a recipient or will your, your life be marked by overcoming opposition for your good and others? What kind of person are you going to be? Okay, that's an application because you have to consciously decide, and you have to consciously decide kind of often, right? The second is, um, celebrity and qualification is not the means of renewal. Burdened integrity is. We'll talk more about integrity as the book goes on. But burdened integrity. Okay, listen. You want to know what—you want to know what Nehemiah's leadership qualifications are? The man couldn't have gotten a job at a 7-Eleven, okay? He has, like, no resume. He's not even a plumber. Like, he's not even blue-collar with, like, a real skill. Like, this guy moves cups for a living, okay? If you can run a cash register, your resume is better. You understand? And God takes him and uses him to rebuild a society. 
Do you understand? Because he has the right burden to start with. We're also going to find out in the rest of the book, he has integrity that is unbelievable, which is why he's the cupbearer of the king, really. Because he can be trusted. All right, gotta keep moving. Got 17 more minutes. Okay. Three, can you accept that you've been planted where you've been planted, or are you going to be mad about it? Right? You don't get to pick where you're planted. You were planted wherever you were planted. You have suffered whatever you have suffered. You have whatever assets that you have. You are where you are. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to lay down and die? Or are you going to realize that even if the wind blows you over in the winter, and bugs crawl into your bark, and vines try to grow up and choke you, that you are going to struggle for life and overcome, and know that there is a good gardener that will periodically come along and spray you and cut some vines, because he longs for your survival and flourishing. What are you going to do? Who are you going to be? What are you going to accept? What can you change and what can't you change? And do you have the faith to accept that and take what has hurt you and let God use it for your beauty, your comforting of others, your expertise in the future for helping people? Four, are you more likely to give up because of decadence or desperation? What's more likely to destroy your heart in relationship to the burden of God? Is it the fact that everybody's beating you up so bad and life is so difficult that it's so hard for you to feel like you can even get a breath to look at God and to see what his burden would be for you? I know that's true for some of you. For some of you, that's how it feels for you. You couldn't possibly figure God into your life. It's too difficult. Part of it's you're trying to do life without him. You're trying to care about him without caring about what he cares about. That's not a healthy relationship. And things would be better if you did. So it's not a great argument, but I know that's how you feel, right? That's how a lot of us feel. Or is your problem that things are so good that you're just going to be distracted and like, whatever, man. I know in this moment in American life, given where I am right now, my biggest danger is decadence more than desperation. I got to know that about myself because it's different defense. Do you understand? How you play defense against losing your heart to decadence and how you play defense losing your heart to desperation are totally different. If you're losing your heart because of desperation, you need support. You need community. You need to bring people in your life. You need to trust people. You need to let people do some stuff for you. You need to ask for help. You need to pray. You need to enter into the embrace of others and let people love and help you, right? If it's decadence, man, you need accountability. You need people to come to your family. Shut that screen off. Wake up and go to the gym with me. Stop eating that. Here's the Bible. Let's read it together. Like, you need people who are going to help prosperity not destroy you. And you need disciplines that will help prosperity not destroy you. Okay, we got to keep moving. Sorry that you're taking so long with this. Okay, what do you have— What do you have as a burden that isn't part of your present experience? Like, what is the burden of God operative in your life? Because it won't be exactly the same for all of us. God wants to bring about redemption in the world. He has a redemption mandate. He wants to save people through Christ. He has a creation mandate. He wants to bring prosperity in the world by bringing all of creation under our dominion in righteous and good ways of stewardship, okay? And all of our lives are intermingled with these burdens of God in different ways. And so yours might be like to start a intergenerational community where frail elderly people can live with younger people too. That might be like your burden because you see the separation of generations is destroying the plan of God in the web of humanity. It might be that you want to start a church that actually reaches people for Jesus because you feel like most churches are just for church people. It might be that you want to start like a YouTube channel where you do makeup or you like— um, You like forge axe heads, but you talk about Jesus while you're doing it, or you like try to break—like, there's so many ways to like work the burden of God into something true about you. Do you understand? And to use what God has put into your planting 
and to put that together with the burden of God to produce some kind of flourishing in your life that functions for you and that helps other people. That your creativity and imagination has to work that out. With friends, talk with people, get advice. But that's one of the big questions of your life. Not what are you going to eat? Okay. Six. What should you do to experience the deep feelings of real piety? Like if you're like, I just don't feel very burdened, Nick. Okay, listen. I understand that it's terrifying and painful to have a burden. But listen, in relationship to being a human being, it's actually worse to not have a burden. And so what I would encourage you to do is to believe Jesus and enter into the practices that really build deep emotion so that you can begin to be burdened by the things that burden God. One, think theological thoughts. Learn to think God's thoughts and care about what he thinks about. Second, confess what you profess what you really believe. I don't know, anybody Catholic or Lutheran before you were this? Whatever we are? Okay, like every sermon, what did, or every, every service, what did you recite? Right? The creed, right? You had to recite the creed every week. Just so you, what, why? So you just memorize some, right? It's, it's, it's partly that. It's partly that it's helpful. It's another thing to do in worship, right? But it also, it's good for the human heart to repeat what you believe positively. Especially when you walk out and other people don't believe it when you go out there. You should positively say what you do believe. Prayer is a great place to do that. God wants to hear what you think about him. Right? And then confess, that is, tell God what you know is wrong with you. And even your culture and even your family line. Like, he's like, yeah, even my dad was doing bad stuff. Like, you, you should be like, well, Nehemiah probably had a really bad dad. He was like a, a something-aholic. Well, no, Nehemiah's dad is probably awesome like Nehemiah. But he's also a man. And he also didn't take God's commandments and truths as seriously as he should, because there isn't a human who does, except for one. Because the point is not to beat yourself up. The point is recognizing that on some level, you are not aligned with the longings of God. And when you confess what's wrong with you, you see, if you imagine, like, this is God's longing, and this is you, okay? And there's like a hinge here. There's wood in that hinge that's keeping you from getting it in there. Do you understand? That's your sin. That's what you won't admit to. It's your self-righteousness. And until you pull out that, that stuff that's breaking the hinge, you can't move this arm in line with this one. Confession does that. You're like, you're pulling all the junk out, cleaning the device, so God can be like, okay, great. Whoop. Without confession, you'll never come in line with God. Ever. It's necessary. And it's not meant to hurt you or beat you up. It's to align you more with the truth and less with self-deception so that God can make you more yourself as he makes you more like himself. My clicker is way over here. Okay, we're almost done. Seven is, listen, when we get Nehemiah in this book, he's already Nehemiah. Okay? He's a, a pretty great man. And it's really great that we get to study him. But you should recognize that if you're like, I'm not like that guy very much. It's fine. We get Nehemiah when God sends him on his great mission. We don't get Nehemiah when God is making him. Do you understand? Now, God makes him during this experience, too. Everybody grows throughout their life. But God has done a lot in him already, and you're not going to be Nehemiah next week. But that's your goal. And that is where God is taking you. He's taking you to a place to be a burdened overcomer full of integrity. Right? And then lastly, Jesus is the true and better Nehemiah. Listen, you think leaving the summer party palace of Susa to go to a broken down city is a sacrifice? You try being in the citadel of heaven with 10,000 good pleasures, not in need of anything. 
right? And you, your life, you don't even exist. You're like a, you're like a possible future he could avert if he darn well felt like it in the providence of his workings. You don't even need to exist, much less him need to save you. Shoot. And he was so burdened for the future choice that you would exist so that you could be his enemy. <laughs> so that he could then save you. He left the citadel of heaven to be treated a hundred times worse than Nehemiah. To be destroyed by his own people. To be sneered at by the people who had all of his words and revelation and who watched him do what was right and good. And all of it, it says in the book of Hebrews, he scorned all of that cost. It says, because of the joy that was set before him in going to the cross because of what it would do. Because, you know what? Because he, you know, he has food you don't know anything about. But you know what? We could know something about that food. We could. We could become the kind of Christians who know something about that food. Who know what it's like to feel deeply, to know God more deeply, to be more aligned with him, to have his burdens, to be both hurt and enraptured with joy on levels we are afraid to even think about, and to be the kind of people who are so filled with the burden of God that we are so made courageous and strong by it that we can overcome anything that God's plan would flourish and God's name would be seen for as glorious as it is. Fathers, we transition to communion, this ritual of believing in your name and trusting in your name and feeling deeply what Christ has done for us. We pray that you would make our hearts sensible and able to interact with the depth of the truth that we're engaging with in this simple sacrament. We pray that you'd help us to feel your burden and enjoy how much love there is demonstrated in it. We pray that it would change us. Help us to profess and confess it well in Jesus' name. Amen.